Gracious Father, you have lavished your love upon us by sending the gift of your eternal Son into the world. Born of a virgin, he shares our nature and makes it possible for us to be redeemed. Lord, we ask that you would give us the faith to humbly receive this gift. Make us like your servant Mary, ready to accept new direction for our lives because of the coming of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. People of God, as we come to the close of the Advent season and move toward the celebration of Christmas, we Christians of the Protestant stripe grant ourselves one seasonal indulgence, not an extra cup of special eggnog or another slice of fruitcake, but for this one time every year, we give ourselves permission to think about the Virgin Mary, if only for a brief moment. If I ever preached about Mary in May or August, then my loyalties would be suspect. But within the window of December, Mary is relatively safe. After all, the nativity scene would seem a bit strange without her, just a bunch of men hanging around with animals and a baby, kind of like a hunting trip without a babysitter. At any other time of year, Mary is something of an embarrassment for us. We don't know quite what to do with her. But I want you to consider some things about Mary. For all of our ambivalence about Mary, she's the only person to be present with Jesus from his conception to his crucifixion. She's the witness to his miraculous birth, of course, but she's also witness to the first miracle he ever performed and to his resurrection. Mary is even attendant in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit on the church. No other single person in the New Testament can make all of those claims. So when the Second Vatican Council describes Mary as the first disciple of Jesus, I think we have to heartily agree Mary becomes a remarkable sign of what it means, what it looks like to follow and believe in Jesus from start to finish. Mary is a clear biblical sign of faith. And the irony, of course, is that while, while we Protestants have been strong advocates for the importance of faith, we've not usually been strong advocates of Mary. Luke says that all generations will call her blessed. And I think that it's high time that we count ourselves among those generations. We need to speak the truth about Mary and confess at least what the Bible confesses about her. As we listen to today's gospel, we hear a psalm, a song from Mary. We hear the story of the Annunciation, and we learn that for the second time in less than a year, the angel Gabriel is sent on a mission to announce a pregnancy. Just six months prior, or over, just over six months prior, Gabriel had, uh, had descended to the old priest Zechariah and told him that his wife Elizabeth 
would become pregnant with the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. Before this, the last time Gabriel was ever heard of is when he visited the prophet Daniel, centuries before. So for an angel who only gets a call once every 500 years, this has to be a remarkable double event. Emily Dickinson called an angel a bisecting messenger, a courier of God who slices down into the center of life, usually in the place we'd least expect it. And so this angel appears to this young virgin girl in the backwater village of Nazareth in Galilee. My best analogy to Nazareth in Galilee is to compare it to Watervliet, Michigan. You say, where? And I say, exactly. Nazareth is a tiny, obscure, unimportant village. It's a good place to be from. And it's the last place that you'd expect to find an angelic visitation, an annunciation. For that matter, Mary, this young teenage Miriam, is among the the least people that you would expect to be visited by an angel. She's just a kid, just a peasant from a family of peasants. In fact, she might be taking a step up in the world by marrying into a family of construction workers like Joseph's, but even then, it appears that she'll never be rich. She's what the Hebrews referred to as the anawim, the pious poor, favored by God because of their simple faith and because of their suffering. How do we know that Mary is poor? Well, aside from the hints at her origins, there is the fact that later, when Joseph and Mary came to the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifice on behalf of this newborn child, Jesus, They present a poor man's offering. The law required that they sacrifice a goat, but it permitted people who were exceptionally poor to offer two turtle doves instead, which is what Joseph and Mary offer. So Mary, this poor young teenage girl, is surprised as anyone at the visitation of an angel. She would never presume herself to be worthy of such an honor. And it's here in this very first chapter of the Gospel of Luke that we begin to see that Jesus Christ is going to bring an upheaval of all our expectations, that the values of God are dramatically different than the values of our society. In his book, Peculiar Treasures, Frederick Buechner describes this moment of encounter between the angel Gabriel and Mary. Not only is Mary shocked that she's been chosen, but so is the angel. Buechner writes, Mary struck the angel Gabriel as hardly old enough to have a child at all, let alone this child. But he'd been entrusted with a message to give her, and he gave it. He told her what the child was to be named, who he was to be, and something about the mystery that was to come upon her. You mustn't be afraid, Mary, he said. And he said it, as he said it, he only hoped she wouldn't notice that beneath his great golden wings he himself was trembling with fear to think that the whole future of creation hung now on the answer of a teenager. Gabriel addresses this young girl, greeting you 
who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. In other words, Mary, you have been specially graced by God. He is present with you in a powerful way. And Mary herself begins to tremble with fear and excitement and no little bit of confusion. The angel replies, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. My old Greek teacher used to say to us, How do you know when you're dealing with an angel? Because usually his first words are, Me phobu, do not be afraid. There's a principle here that we as modern people, as postmodern people, have some difficulty with holy fear. Most of us expect that a visitation from God would be like a visit from Santa Claus, all warm and cuddly, and then when it's all over, he leaves us with some wonderful gift. But in Scripture, an encounter with God is usually the opposite, it's often a threat to our own sense of security and comfort. And and usually what God leaves behind is, yes, a gift, but a, a, a precarious gift at best. God tends to work through angels because he understands that most of us would be completely undone by a direct, unmediated encounter with the holy. Remember Isaiah in the temple. He saw a vision of the Lord high and lifted up, and his first response was, Woe is me, I am done for, because I've seen the Lord. If an angelic visitation, an angelic visitation is enough to, to, to set your hair on end and to send a shiver down your spine, and so the angel tells her initially, don't be afraid, Mary. What we expect to hear after this, these words is a promise that everything will turn out just as she planned, that everything will come up roses. Don't be afraid, Mary. You've won the lottery. No need to fear, Mary. God has decided to grant every wish you have. God has decided to remove all pain from your life. Don't be afraid, Mary. You're going to have a perfectly happy marriage. Never again will you struggle. But instead, what Mary hears from the angel comes as a direct challenge to the notion of a perfectly peaceful marriage, a direct challenge to the notion of a happy life. What the angel says is more dreadful than the mere fact of being visited by an angel. Mary, you you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of David forever. His kingdom will never end. In other words, don't be afraid, Mary. God is asking you to set aside all your expectations for a blissful wedding, all your plans for a normal marriage. What God has planned for you instead is that your your own plans be unraveled, that your life plans be sacrificed for the sake of your people. Consider it this way. The angel is telling this young bride-to-be that her white wedding is going to be sidetracked by an unplanned pregnancy, that her reputation is going to be forever sullied by the rumor that she's been unfaithful, and that her son is going to be a threat to all the kingdoms of the world. 
This last summer, as we were coming to the end of our sanctuary construction project, we often had intense discussions with construction workers about whether we were going to make our deadline for opening. Sometimes when the construction workers would hint that we might not be finished on time, I'd casually suggest that I might give their names and numbers to the brides that were planning to be married in September and October. <laughs> or better yet, the mothers of the bride. <laughs> Somehow that seemed to put the fear of God in them. Mary is a bride put in a difficult position. She's being told that if she responds to God's will, that not only her wedding, but her entire life is going to be disrupted. Later, she'll be told by a prophet that a sword will pierce through her heart because of this child. Mary simply asks a question. How can I have this child since I'm a virgin? And the angel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is language from Genesis chapter 1. So that the Holy One born of you will be the Son of God. For nothing is impossible with God. That baby will be born not by a normal sexual relationship, but instead it will be created within you by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is a starting over for the whole human race. This is the beginning of new creation. But what it will take is your trust, your cooperation, your life to make it happen. In this respect, Mary represents all of us when we come into encounter with the living God. She's asked to do something remarkable, to let go of her plans for herself, to entrust her whole destiny into the hands of God. And in this respect, she becomes the first disciple of Jesus, the first to have faith in him. And her reply should be our reply. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me, just as you have said. This is one of the clearest statements of faith contained in the whole Bible. God, I'm your slave. Whatever you say goes. I want to contrast this Mary's response to the popular concept of faith. For most of us, faith is seen as a kind of self-assurance, a sign of internal confidence. When we tell someone to have faith, we tell them to buck up, be confident in yourself. And so faith has become a kind of emotional work that, that, that comes from within us by which we impress God with our high degree of self-determination. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Indiana Jones movies, and in the third film you see this intrepid archaeologist forced to pass through three tests in order to find the Holy Grail and save his father's life in the process. And the final test is this huge chasm that he has to cross, a chasm without a bridge, and Indiana Jones is simply told to take a leap of faith. The chasm is far too wide to jump. So Indiana simply closes his eyes and steps out into nothingness, only to discover that there's an invisible bri bridge 
supporting his weight. And all along, his father is repeating to him, you have to believe. You have to believe. What is interesting and telling about most Hollywood movies is that no mention is ever made of what or in whom he's supposed to believe. The implication is believe in yourself. And that notion pervades modern culture. All through the holiday season, listen carefully to the special programs that speak about the merit of faith during this season without ever making mention of the object of faith. Whom are we believing in? Listen carefully to modern politicians. I hope you do listen very carefully to modern politicians. Notice how that when they tell us that it is their faith that sustains them through dark times, that we seldom hear about who their faith is in. More often than not, this is nothing more than faith in faith. Faith as a form of self-confidence. We think to ourselves, if only I can have strong enough faith, then I can do marvelous things. Or then God will respond with marvelous things. And so faith is reduced to a kind of self-motivation for the benefit of our religious narcissism. One popular American pastor said, Jesus recommends faith as a technique for getting results. Scholar of American religion Will Herberg says that the classic expression of faith for modern people can be found in the words of another famous preacher who wrote in his memoirs, I began each morning by saying two words, I believe. Those two words with nothing added, he says. The problem is the nothing added. And the upshot of this approach to faith is that it really has no object, no one to have faith in, that is, aside from the self. Herberg concludes, what Americans come to believe when they're religious is faith, the positive attitude of believing. And Reinhold Niebuhr adds, the unknown God of Americans seems to be faith itself. You see, we have come to see faith as a spiritual end in itself, a kind of personal strength or pious fortitude. And what this tends to do among us is distinguish not the faithful from the faithless, but the arrogant from the insecure. People who are insecure tend to agonize over their shaky faith. And people who are arrogant falsely assume that they have strong faith. But what Mary represents for us is biblical faith. She realizes she has nothing to offer, not even strong faith. Mary realizes that she is empty, not full of self-confidence and power. Mary has nothing to offer but herself. And she faces a difficult challenge in trusting God, the undoing of all her plans and expectations the end of her reputation, but in doing so, she demonstrates the true character of faith. Because in Mary's world, faith is not a technique for getting results, at least the results that we want. Faith is the risk that by putting her life into the hands of God, she may never get what she really wants. Biblical faith, then, is not self-confidence 
It's not self-anything for that matter. The true center of faith is God, period. To trust in God, to have faith in God, is to be unselfed. It's to have yourself caught up in the machinery of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And it's the beginning of the end of your own self-assurance and self-control. In the, in the book Pilgrim's Progress, or excuse me, Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis, he uses diving as an analogy for faith. He suggests that learning to dive is really about le- unlearning something, unlearning the instinct to safeguard ourselves as we dive into the water. In order to dive, Lewis says, we have to give up self-preservation. And in order to have faith in God, we need to do the same. Thor Hall says that the Christian word annunciation really means that God is saying to us, stand back and see what I'm about to do. You see, when we make faith about us, about how much fortitude we can muster up within ourselves, then we're dangerously close to missing out on what God is doing because we're looking in the wrong direction. When we agonize about whether we have authentic faith or enough faith, we're caught up in navel-gazing and we're failing to look at God, who is the author and finisher of faith. In other words, faith's beginning and end come from God in Jesus Christ. I remember an old poster that used to be sold in Christian bookstores that read, if you feel distant from God, guess who moved? Now, I have two difficulties with that sentiment. First of all, it suggests that your feelings are the surest test of real faith. If you feel distant from God, we're told, then you must be distant from God. But in Jesus Christ, we are promised Emmanuel, God with us. This is the guarantee of God's presence, not based in feeling, but based in the fact of incarnation. The second concern I have with that sentiment is that the Advent message is about somebody moving, but not you, God. Not further away, but among us and with us. God has come in our midst in Jesus Christ. That's the defining fact of our faith. We modern Christians need to realize that the gospel is not so much about what we do as about our openness, our receptiveness to what God is doing. And all that requires is empty arms. Archbishop Oscar Romero preached, without poverty of spirit, without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. True faith is coming to the end of ourselves. It should always humble and amaze us that God chose this frightened teenager Mary to teach us about faith, to learn to abandon ourselves in the presence of Jesus and to discover that faith is not a technique for getting God to do what we want, but a means to become sharers in what God is doing in his world. 
I don't usually look to the Beatles for good theology. But remember the words of the, their final hit, Let It Be. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. These are Mary's words recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And they still resonate wisdom to us, showing us the character of authentic faith. Not about us, not about getting our way in the world, but these simple words, I am the Lord's servant, let it be to me, just as you have said. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.